Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Chris as he continued in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, covering verses 15 through 20. This week, we're going to hear from Pastor Chris again as he continues in chapter 5, starting at verse 21, going to verse 33. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. Marriage doesn't work, (laughs) period. This is what you can do. And it was a picture of Bill and Melinda Gates, and you know they're getting a divorce, and her statement is, marriage doesn't work, and this is what can be done instead. Her suggestions, one, don't get married. Two, join a cult. Number three, do the King Henry method, which is marry six, and hopefully one sticks. And the last one is, do whatever you want. Now, that is the wisdom of the world when it comes to marriage. And so in our text in Ephesians chapter 5, which is the portion of scripture we're going to be in today, Paul is going to explain the worthy walk through the worthy marriage. And we are called to walk as God has walked, to obey as God has obeyed, and to fall in line with what God has told told us to do. And so when it comes to marriage, the world says, hey, don't do it because it's not worth it. Now, when you look at the statistics, you can kind of see where they're where they're going with it. One out of every two marriages sadly ends in divorce here in America. One out of two. 15% of all marriages end within the first 12 months, which is shocking and which is sad. And here's the the statistic that absolutely blew the doors off for me. In 1970, in America, 86% of people were married. 1970, 50 years ago, 86% married. In 2021, the new number is one out of every three Americans is married. Marriage has went from 86% all the way down to one third of people are married. The institution of marriage itself is under attack. And the reason it's under attack is because God instituted it. And when man doesn't follow after God, man will rebel against God and everything in which God stands for. So the marriage institution God has placed and corrupt man will revolt against all that God does. So scripture tells you and I how to live out the successful marriage. It's a witness to the world. It's a testament to God. It's a beautiful union, but it must be done in the way in which God himself designed it. When you, the creature, try to operate outside of the creator's way in which he has told you to live, you will end up in error. And so scripture is very clear on how we are to live out the marriage union. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me or turn on with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to take verses 22 through 24. Now, it's going to take the whole section on marriage, but it would have turned into a three hour, you know, teach fest. And I had grace upon you all. And so we're going to break it up into two weeks. So we're going to look at the wife today. And then next week, gentlemen, make sure you eat your Wheaties, take your vitamin C. There's no football as an excuse to not come next week because we're going to get lit up as husbands and men like Christmas trees next week. God's going to light us up through his word, but this week we'll focus on the wife and then we'll move to the husband. Now in marriage, God basically gives two commands. And if you've been in the church, you've heard it many times before. And so Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 is the command to the wife. And then in verse 25, it is the command to the husband. The primary command, verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission. That's an S word we do not like. Verse 25. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those are the two primary commands. Now, raise your hand if you were one of those kids like me that every time your parents told you to do something, you asked that question, why? Anybody? Micah, I know you're that kind of guy too. You are that, and I'm the same way. Do this, why? Do this, why? I want to know why. Why did God say to the wife, submit to the husband's lead in love? Why? In order to answer that, we have to go all the way back. We go all the way back to the creation of the sexes and the institution and the establishment of marriage. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to take real time in laying the groundwork for what a marriage is. And then we can move on from there. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Why has God commanded us in the marriage unit to live in the way in which he has? Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. If you're a highlighter or a note taker, you can just put a box around the word helper. Suitable, you can put an underline under the word suitable because that's important and we'll go back to that for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he called them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. Again, getting back to that word, you can bracket it. Suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Fascinating. You have Adam, which means in Hebrew, man. God created man. Man had relationship with God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Adam also had perfect relationship with his environment. There was no sin, everything perfect. So imagine this, man's best friend, the German shepherd, the Rottweiler, whatever, the companionship that a person has with their dog is very strong, very powerful. It wasn't enough for Adam. That dog would never have peed on his shoes, eaten his homework. There was no sin. It was perfect in every way. Yet God looked at Adam and said, you are lacking. And there's something wrong. What is it? He was alone. And out of all of God's perfect, beautiful, holy creation, Adam was lacking. What was he lacking? Listen, a helper suitable for him. Those are two terms that are germane to the institution of marriage and to sex. Number one, what does it mean to be suitable? It means he was lacking someone of worth. He was looking and the German shepherd wasn't worthy of his love and relationship. The, the culture around him, the society, the environment, there was lack. He needed more something or someone that was equal and worthy. And so what did God do? Created woman. What is that telling us? How was, how was Adam created? Was he created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing? Out of the dust. God took the dust and out of man or out of the dust, man was created and to the dust will return. But check this. How was Eve created? Out of man. What is God's statement? That man and woman are equal, are the same, have equal worth and intrinsic value. That a man is not better than a woman 
nor is a woman better than a man. They are completely even. God is not a favor of persons. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, don't matter the color of your skin. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. There's equality. And yet, with equality, there's hierarchy, right? In, in, a, in a, any institutional organization, if you have two CEOs and nobody else, the organization's not going anywhere. You're going to have a bunch of plans and no one to execute. If you have, you're in a tribe and you have two chiefs and no Indians, the, the tribe is not going anywhere. There must, in, in any organization or institution, be hierarchy for that institution to function. So God created man and woman equal, yet there's different in hierarchy or duty. How do I know that? God created Eve for what? To be what? A helper. The Greek word is an, or the Hebrew word is an ally. It doesn't mean a slave. It doesn't mean the help. It means someone who is an ally to her husband, who is the wind to her sail, to his sails. Somebody who is a ride or die, I will have your back. I'm the auxiliary. You're the head and I'm the neck and I'm here to support you. There it is. That's what the call is. There's the hierarchy. Now, if she's called to be the auxiliary, then that by default makes him what? The leader. So how is Adam to lead? How did Adam lead? What was the first institution of marriage and relationship like? Let's look at verse 23. And this is beautiful. These are the very first recorded words of any human being. Adam is our father in a sense, because we all come from him. In a sense. He, right, this guy says these first words that are symbolic of all human civilization, and it is the words from a husband to his wife, the words from a man to his woman, and these are the words, and it's essentially, I love you. Verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What does Adam say? You are of equal worth. You are flesh of my flesh, and you are bone of my bone. You are worthy. Now, when we go into the New Testament, Ephesians 5, and we're going to see this next week, Paul says this, husbands, lead and love your wives. Why? Because she's from you and nobody hates their own flesh. You love yourself. That's why you brush your teeth. That's why you eat healthy food and you exercise. That's why you got the Tempur-Pedic mattress and the air conditioning. We love eat ourselves. And if your wife is out of you, then the call is you are to lead her in love. And so you, you see Adam there and this declaration, you are worthy of my love, my adoration, of my being. That's the creation of the sexes. Now God institutes marriage. It's the oldest institution on planet earth. It precedes government. It precedes God's law. It precedes the church. The institution of marriage is the oldest. And guess what? God defined it. We don't get to redefine it. This is how marriage is intended to be. Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. I need your help. The words a man, is that singular or is that plural? Singular. So a singular man is to leave his father and mother and to be joined to his wife. Is his wife in the singular tense or in the plural? Singular. A singular male is to leave his father and mother and be joined to a singular female. That's it. Now, as I was studying this week for this sermon, I realized that I had to define terms. And then I thought to myself, how sad is it 
that we have to define what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. And then I thought, I wonder how many preachers in the last 2,000 years had to actually do that. How sad and perverse is the generation we live in. But let's define it so that we know exactly where God stands. What is a man? A man, the Greek or the Hebrew word Adam is male. It means male. What is a male? Someone who has XY chromosomes, whose reproductive system expels seed for the cause of reproduction. That's the male. And God says, if you're a man, act like men. First Corinthians chapter six. If you're a man, act like one or take a hike. Act like men. Women, what's a, a female? One who has an XY chromosome, whose reproductive system receives the, the seed, produces the egg, and then inhibits or has a place in which the child then can grow and she bears child. That is a female. The Bible says one male, one female, that's the union of marriage. So how does, what does the culture do? And listen, I'm, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna have a sneak peek into what the society is trying to push on us. Okay? Cause biology is very clear. There's a very distinct difference between a man and a woman, a male and a female. Males are bigger as far as muscle density, bone density, a reproductive systems different, even brain structure and gray matter is different. And the way and call in which they're to operate is different. What the world tells us is this sex, and gender are different. Sex is biologically what you are out the womb, but gender is what you identify as. And what they say, what the world is pushing upon us is this, that gender is a social construct. And what I mean by that is gender only exists because of the thousand years of oppression that chauvinistic, heterosexual, you know, relationships have imposed upon the world. And it's because of that imposing of these, these views of the difference between a male and a female. It's these views and, and this imposing that a man is to be the truck driver or the lumberjack and the, the wife is to be the homemaker or the caregiver. It's these kind of ideologies that have been thrust upon us. And because of that, we are having to conform to what we don't want to conform to. That's what the world propagates. So you can be a man and you can be a woman. Because my identity, my, the, what I lean towards is feminine or a woman. Therefore I am. Remember last week we talked about this. It was the $5 word we spoke of last week. It's the philosophy of man that throws away objective truth for personal, um, um, what is it? personal feelings and, and, and the way in which you observe the world, you know, personal experiences. It's that word of existentialism. And that's in the, in our society today where it doesn't matter about truth. All that matters is how I feel. And if I feel a certain way, therefore it's true and you have to accept it. And so when we come to gender and sex, the world says you could be a biological male or female, but you get to choose what you are because you overthrow the culture that has oppressed you into saying that boys don't play with dolls or, or girls aren't to cage fight or whatever the case may be. It's, it's imposed upon you. So you become woke. And when you become woke, you come over that. You overcome those cultural ideologies and you liberate yourself. And when you're liberated, you can choose what you want to be. And nobody can tell you otherwise. This is what the Bible says. Sex and gender are the same. If you're a man, act like one. If you're a woman, act like one. God chooses for you. You don't get that choice. So scripture is very clear. 
institution of marriage, one man, one woman. The man is to lead in love like Adam led Eve. The woman, Eve, is to submit as the helpmate or the ally to her husband. So why does marriage, one out of every two, fail? Why is it that 50 years ago, 86% were married and now 33% are married? Why is it that 15% of marriages fail within the first 12 months? Sin. Chapter two, everything's perfect. Chapter three, what happens? Adam bombs in the garden. The atom bomb went off. Eve and Adam ate of the tree of the good, of the knowledge of good and evil and sin entered in and death through sin and everything was corrupted. So flip over to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, verse 16. This is now the curse. God has cursed the serpent and now God is cursing the woman the actual gender, the woman. And this is the curse upon females. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You could thank Eve for that one. In pain, you will bring forth children. So the first reason or the first consequence of sin is to the woman, the labor pains are going to be intense, incredible. I'm not even going to fathom like I can describe it. The next thing is where marriage comes into play. Yet your desire will be for your husband. People think the word, that word desire there is, oh, I'm going to want to love him and I'm going to want to just smother him. And that's not it. The word desire means to control in totality. Flip the page over to Genesis 4, and this is the where that word desire is used. God is speaking to, to Cain. Abel did a fantastic sacrifice, and, and, and God was happy with Abel. And then Cain sacrificed. God wasn't too pleased. Do you remember that? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, we pick the story up. Then the Lord, God, then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You must conquer it. Remember last week, we talked about that little tiger. The guy brought the tiger home and, and it was cute and he, he took care of the little tiger and the tiger grew. And soon enough, the tiger ate the man out of house and home. Then soon enough, the, the tiger actually hunted the man in his sleep and killed him. And I said, that tiger is symbolic of sin. It starts off small, cute, fun, fuzzy, controllable. Then it takes over you. You can't control it. It controls you. Sin kills That's the same word or concept of desire. In the fall, the wife is going to desire or want to, in totality, control everything over her husband. Who are you with? What time are you coming home? Why did you do this? What color are the walls? I wanted this color. I wanted this paint. You know, you uh, this, that, and other. Oh, the time, the place, who you hang out with, everything. The wife in today's vernacular, because of the sin nature, is going to want to wear the pants in the relationship. She's going to want to wear the pants. That's the sin nature. That's not how God intended it but that's the fallen human nature. Now, when it comes to uh, the man, we see, going back to Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband. You're going to want to rule over him and he will rule over you. And the word rule means to rule with an iron fist. How was Adam to lead? In love. Because of the fall, how is the natural man going to lead? He's going to rule over you with brute force. So why do you have one in two marriages failing? Because you have the woman who wants to wear the pants in the relationship and the man who says, over my dead body. And you're going head to head. It is the fall. 
Why did God tell the wife submit and the husband to lead in love? That's the original design for marriage. Why is God in the New Testament calling us to return back to the way it was? Because we are no longer in sin. So think of it. If my natural tendency as a male is to dominate and my wife's natural tendency as a female is to want to dominate over me, how then can we overcome? You have to live supernaturally. You have to live outside of yourself. If you're here and you're going to stay there, then you need to live out, get out. You need to pull yourself out. It has to be a force outside of you and able to propel you forward. That's why every preacher in the world says a happy marriage is the wife, the husband, and Jesus in the middle. And there's truth to that. Because naturally, you're going to fight, bicker, and fall apart. Only God can keep you together and propel you forward. And so the New Testament is nothing more than trying to get fallen man back into the garden. That's what the cross is. It's to get you back to paradise, to walk with, the, with God in the cool of the day in perfection. What's heaven? To be with God in perfection, to walk with God in relationship and an environment that's holy, pure, and good. The whole point of the cross is to get us back to the garden. So in the Christian walk, when we're called to submit and lead in love, it's to get us back from the failing way in which our, our society operates and rules in marriage and get us back to the way in which the creator who created you and the institution of marriage has called us to live. If you want a successful marriage, do these things. If you want to be alone and you want to die a, a miserable person alone and by yourself, then forsake what God has to say. It's your choice. It's your rule. You get to live in your own consequence. So Ephesians chapter five, let's open up the text and start breaking it down. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Anybody see something weird with the word subject in your verse or even on the screen? It's italicized. What does that mean? If, if your Bible has italicized words, what does that mean? It's, it's the translator trying to indicate or to tell you that that word is not there in the original manuscripts. That that word was inserted there by the translator so that you would have context. So you hear in, in a lot of the Christian feministic churches this push. Well, wives aren't called to submit because the word submit isn't even in verse 22. So again, it's, it's this, this idea that you're trying to impose something that's not there, which again is false. What verse comes before verse 22? Can someone help me out? All right, verse 21. Now we have some mathematicians in the house. Let's read verse 21. And be subject. Now that word is there. It's in, it's in black and white, no italicized. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's only one verb. In verse 21 and 22, there's only one verb, and it's the word verb subject. So for verse 22 to make sense, he has to be using verse the verb from verse 21. Does that make sense? If that wasn't enough, Colossians 3.18 says, with, with submission in there, wives, submit to your husbands, which is fitting to the Lord. As if that wasn't enough, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, wives, and then the word is there, submit to your husbands. So this idea of submission is there. What does it mean? The Greek word is hupotadzo. Hupo means to put under, and tadzo is rank. And it's a military term. And it means to fall under rank. That's what it means. Doesn't mean you're less than. It just means there's hierarchy. In the military, you can have a, a sniper and a potato peeler and an Apache helicopter pilot, and they're all soldiers. And yet there's differings in rank, differings in purpose, differings in duty. God calls the wife to this idea of falling in rank or submission, which we do not like the term, but that is what God has called us to. 
to submit. What do you think is at the heart of submission? If we're called as Christians, because every Christian is called to submit. Christians submit to the Lord. Christians submit to the government. Christians submit to every human institution. So every Christian submits. So the husband submits, the wife submits. What is the, what at the core is the key to submission? Respect is an absolute core to it, but that's almost like an after, after part. What at the core, like how can a, a woman give respect? What has to happen in order for submission to happen? Cause submission is an action, right? Surrender and obedience. Here is how a person, all Christians submit. Submission only comes through humility, period. Pride says, no, I'm number one. Humility says, no, I'm willing to follow. Humility acted out results in submission. What's the key to humility? Holiness and obedience. Two sisters said it. Holiness and obedience. How do I know that? Look at Christ. Look at Christ. The scripture says Christ didn't think it was robbery to be stripped of glory. Imagine the creator God stripping himself of glory to become creation. And he didn't think it robbery. He was humble enough to submit. Who was he submitting to? God the Father. Now, this is where things get interesting. Jesus says, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Here's a question on equality. Is God the Father and God the Son equal? Absolutely. Yet, they differ in function. Jesus submits, even though he's equal to. Why? Because Christ is humble in obedience. And so he came, he was denied the inn, he was thrown in an animal trough. He grew up and was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the scripture says he humbled himself ultimately to the cross at the point of death. The greatest show of humility and obedience was the cross. And Christ is our demonstration. Although he was equal to God the Father, he submitted because he knew his role. He hupotazomide to God the Father. The call of the Christian is to do the same. The call of the wife and the family unit is to do the same. It's a call to holiness. Couple things I really want to point out. Wives, be subject to, get this, what is the, what does the Y and the O word say? Be subject to your own husbands. It's not a call that the, a woman walks around subservient to every male on planet earth. No. It's a call to submit within the family unit. Submit to your husband. You're not submitting to every other male on planet earth. God hasn't joined you to him. You submit to your own husband. And that happens through personal holiness. And I just want to show you how that takes place. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And you're going to see how personal holiness and submission leads to godliness and the way in which God intends. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, and we'll get to husbands next week, we'll get to you guys 
and us next week, even if they're disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold and jewelry and putting on dresses. Listen, your beauty, women, does not come from your makeup or how much you weigh or how good you look in a dress or how beautiful your hair is. None of that matters. It's not external. God says it's internal. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Peter goes on and he he gives the example of Sarah. You remember Abraham and his wife, Sarah or Sarah? Now, Sarah is incredible, and she is the epitome of the, the goal of submission and godliness. Why? Imagine Abram, your husband, comes to you, and he says, <clears throat> some God that I don't know, whom I've never seen, who I cannot validate, has told me to leave everything and go to a land that he's promised. Well, where did he tell you to go? I don't know. Okay, he just told me to grab you and let's go. Now, the Ur of the Chaldees, there are hot baths that have dated back to five th- or four, uh, 2000 BC, almost four or 5,000 years ago. Abram, Abraham was from that place. The Ur of the Chaldees was a nice civilization and they had hot baths thousands of years ago. I mean, it was a civilized place. God says, you and your wife leave that place to go to a place you have no idea about. And what does Sarah do? What does she say? Okay. And did Abraham lead in love? Well, there were times that Abimelech or the guy from Egypt, he lied and and they got separated because Abraham wasn't the man God called him to be and he didn't lead in love. And man, did I tell you next week, it's our turn. And he failed. And yet Sarah followed and they joined back together again. And guess what? Abraham did the same thing again. The same situation again. And guess what? Sarah goes back to Abram. And guess what? Abraham says, I'm still following after God. You know what Sarah says? And I'm following after you. It's the perfect example of marriage. Submission. Look at Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. The virtuous wife. We're going to see some incredible attributes about this woman. We're going to see her do incredible things. And then the Bible tells us her secret. So if you want to be like her and have her successes, the Bible tells you how she got there. The Bible lets you in on her secrets. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find her? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is it's so hard. It's so hard that an excellent wife who can find her for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will lack, he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. We'll stop there for a second. You see the wife's role in this marriage. She's in this supporting cast. She's there to do good and not evil. And so he's able, if you look at verse 11, to leave the house trusting her so that he can go make a gain. He can be the businessman. He can go and hustle and and make sure that the house is provided and protected for. He can only do that when there's trust in the home and when he knows that his wife has his back. Proverbs 31 is Eve before the fall. She's his auxiliary. She's his uh, the wind in his sails. 
Verse 13, she looks for the wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. What does the virtuous wife do? She takes care of her home. Verse verse. 16. Does that mean that she's to be nothing more than a baby maker? You know, walk around with no shoes on, watching Judge Judy shoving bonbons in her mouth is because that's the, the picture of the stay at home mom. That's what the world wants us to believe that they're nothing more than, you know, just walking around with no shoes, shopping at Walmart, you know, and, and making nothing of themselves. This is what God says the submissive, virtuous woman looks like. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength strength, and makes her arms strong. The virtuous wife is an entrepreneur. She's a businesswoman. She can make a dollar out of 15 cents. She's resourceful. That's the idea. She's able to flip a buck and make sure that her family is provided for. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches her hand to the needy. She has a spirit of benevolence. She's looking to take care of the less fortunate. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for her household are clothed with scarlet. That verse says she's a mama bear. She's not afraid to do whatever it takes to protect and take care of her home. She makes covering for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen and garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She's not about bell bottoms or red bottoms. She's about putting on strength and dignity. That's what she is clothed with. And she smiles in the future. She opens her mouth and out comes wisdom. And teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's a woman who works her butt off, taking care of her own. Verse 28 and 29, here's the results. And and ladies, maybe I'm wrong, but tell me if this does not pull at your heartstrings and this is not a desire of your own heart. Verse 28 and 29, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also sings her praises saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. The result of the virtuous wife are children that will praise their mom. I don't know if that's a desire of the woman's heart, but to have your children praise you and sing your praises and adore you and love you, and then your husband to lift you up and exalt you, not tear you down, but show you off to the whole world. If that's not the desire of a wife, I don't know what is. How do you get there? Verse 30, this is her secret, and this can be your success. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. It's not about what you look on the outside. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The result of the virtuous wife is the society looks at you and praises you for how amazing you are, your benevolence, your work ethic, your generosity, your children adore you and your husband loves you. That's the result of submission. You can believe the world and you can believe the lie that submission is weakness, but it's not. Your choice. You can be one of the two that end in divorce or you can be the ones that glorify God. Your choice. It starts with submission. 
And submission is a call to personal holiness. So what if I don't want to? What if I refuse? What if that's not the way I want to live my life? Well, let's look at verse um, 24, verse 23 and 24. So the what is, what is the wife's role? What is she called mainly to do? Now the why. Why is she called to submit? Because it's God's design. Verse 23, 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So here's an illustration. And he gives us something that we can understand, the body. And he talks about the body and he says, the husband's the head and the wife, and he's alluding to this, is the body. Just as Christ is the head of the church and the church is the body to Christ. So my question to you is this, the head controls the body. My right arm is raised because my head said so. My right arm is dropped because my head says so. What happens when the body does not submit to the head? What happens when I tell my, my body to raise my left arm and it's not raising? What happens when I tell my body to stand up and it doesn't stand up? It's called a disability. You are no longer functioning in the means in which you were created to function. You're disabled. When you have a church, universal or a local body, who refuses to submit to the head, which is Christ, what do you have? You have a church that is disabled. It is an impotent, handicapped church. It shows no strength or vitality to it. What happens when you have a marriage where the wife refuses to submit to the husband? It is a powerless marriage. It's a marriage that is broken. Now, this idea of headship, head just equals authority. When you place someone at the head of the table, they're the authority. The head judge or the head referee has the final say. It's this idea of authority. The head is the authority over the body. The brain sends signals to the body. The body responds. Christ is the head of the church. Christ tells us what we ought to live in order to glorify God, and we do it. The husband is called to be the head of the home. When a marriage does not function in that way, it is a handicapped marriage. It's called impotent. It lacks power. Completely lacks power. And so what's the result of a powerless marriage? What's the result of a, a wife who is refusing to submit? Let's look at what Solomon has to say. This guy knew a lot about women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He operated and lived outside of God's will and the institution of marriage, and he paid the heaviest price. God says, you go after foreign women, and they're going to lead you astray, and that's exactly what happened to Solomon. But Solomon does know a thing or two about women. He has experience. So let's see what Solomon through the inspiration of God's spirit, has to say about the rebellious woman. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13. The woman of folly, that's the foolish woman. Remember last week, we talked about the wise and the fool. Remember, the fool has an incorrect worldview of God, which ultimately leads to an incorrect lifestyle. You remember that from last week? The fool has said in, their, in his heart, there is no God, Next step, there is a way that seems right in man, but in the end leads to death. That's two. And then that lifestyle, Proverbs chapter 14, the fool makes mockery of sin. So the fool is a person with an incoherent worldview that leads to an illegitimate lifestyle. So the foolish woman or the woman who is refusing to be holy and submit is boisterous. She is naive and she knows nothing. The Bible says the woman who lives in foolishness is a loud mouth who has no substance. In our culture, the louder the woman is, the more she's commanding her respect. God says, no, the louder you are, the more of a fool you make yourself out to be. Proverbs chapter 12 
and verse four. An excellent wife is a crown to her husband. If you want to be exalted, ladies, be an excellent wife. But she who shames him is like rottedness to his bones. A woman who attacks her husband, belittles her husband, demoralizes her husband, demeans his husband in the presence of other people, what she's doing is tearing her marriage apart. She's destroying her marriage. Think of it. You are two flesh that become one. I just read that a woman who attacks her husband is like rotting bones to the body. What does the skeletal system do in your body? It holds your structure together. When a woman attacks her husband, the very structure that the two flesh are being held together is being eroded away. If you want to end up alone and divorced, continue disrespecting your husband and you'll end up alone and divorced, guaranteed. If you don't, don't do it. Proverbs chapter 21, and we'll uh, wrap this up. Proverbs chapter 21, verse nine. It is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Solomon says it's better to not even live than to live with a wife who's lost her rocker. Uh, to, to live with someone who's unwilling to submit and who is, has a spirit of vexation. It's better to not even live. That's what he means by in the desert place. To live without shelter, food, and water. The necessities of life are better to be, go without than to live in the house with a woman who is unwilling to submit. That's the picture. And that's the danger of when a wife is refusing to submit. So then verse 24 will conclude, but as to the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands. Now get this, in everything. Does that mean everything, everything, everything? Well, there's only two exceptions to that rule and only two. The wife has the right to usurp her husband's authority on two bases. Basis number one, her husband is telling her to do something that God has commanded you not to do. One example I have, wife comes, um, my husband wants to bring another person into the bedroom. Is that acceptable? Absolutely not. Last week, we talked about it. The Christian is to be theonymous. Theo, God, namos, law. The Christian is to be ruled by God. So she usurps her husband's authority when he commands or tells her or advises her to do something that God distinctly says no. Second one, when the husband says don't do something that God has commanded the wife to do. Another real life example, my husband doesn't want me to come to church. He doesn't like you. He doesn't like your people. He doesn't want to be there and he doesn't want me there. What do I do? Scripture says, do not forsake the gathering of one another. You usurp his authority to honor God. And so lastly, we'll close. I said that three times already with this. How can we be holy? If holiness is the key to humility and humility is the key to submission and submission on the part of the wife is the key to the happy home, how do we do it? So I'm just going to give you a list of sweet peas. I was going to break them down. We'll just run right through them. Here's the sweet piece to holiness. And if you got a, a great memory, fantastic. If not, write these down. Number one, focus on process, not performance. Focus on process, not performance. What do I mean by that? Everybody wants to be like Mike. You grab a basketball and we all want to be like Mike Jordan right? Six-time MVP, probably greatest player ever step on the court. We look at the performance and we say, that's what I'm trying to get to. What we fail to acknowledge is the process, the thousand jump shots it took every single day. 
We look at Tiger Woods and we say, I want that green master's jacket. We don't see the process behind it. You look at that godly Christian, that godly Christian wife, the the person that you're striving to be, and you say, that's what I want to be. You don't understand the process it took to get to there. So as Christians, we are to focus on the process and the profits and the progress will come. So number one, focus on how to get there and it will come. The second P is this, purpose on holiness. And what I mean by that is let holiness be your goal. You can't get somewhere unless you know where you're going. If you plan a a vacation, number one, you have to select the destination. Number two, then you figure out how you get there. But if you don't know where you're going, how are you ever going to get there? Right? So the purpose for the Christian life should be holiness. Where are you pulling this up from, Chris? Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. First Peter chapter one, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober. Fix your hope on the completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Be obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lust, which is ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Number one, Process, not performance, which inherently means it's going to take time. Two, purpose on holiness. That's our goal. Number three, practice obedience. Practice obedience. What does that mean? Stop resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked, hard-hearted of eyes and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stop doing that and walk in the Spirit. What is walking in the spirit? It's simply obeying. Paul says in chapter or verse 25 of chapter five of Galatians, he says, if you live by the spirit, if you've been bought by the spirit, if you've been saved by the spirit, if you've been sealed by the spirit, if you've been empowered by the spirit, then you better be living by it. In other words, if God has done all this for you, then you better just stay the course and walk what the way that God has called you to walk. Practice obedience. Fourth, put on love. Put on love. What should be the, the response of the Christian? It's to love. Why? Because love conquers all. Why? Because God says, if you, <clears throat> all the law and the prophets hinge on this, love God, love people, everything summed up in that. So we put on love. And lastly, the last P, patience. You be patient with yourself and you be patient with others. I got saved when I was 25. I'm now 35. I've walked in the world for 25 years. I've walked in Christ for 10. I have to be patient with myself and understand that I'm not going to be who I want to be today. I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not who I want to be. It's a process. And so we're patient with each other. And that's where that G word in Christianity comes in. What's the G word? grace. That's where grace comes in. All right. I know I ran really long. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your scripture. We thank you, God, that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you, O Lord, that you have given us the keys to success. We don't have to run around and try everything under the sun to have a successful marriage. We don't have to have six marriages. We don't have to abstain from marriage. The call to success is a marriage with God at the center. As the woman willingly submits and the husband leads in love, the marriage unit, the family unit is blessed. When we divert from that, there's problem. 
Father, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? Would you give us eyes to see the truth? And God, would we follow and be obedient to you in Jesus' name? Amen.
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We then read, they eat of the tree, they disobey God, their eyes are open, and they were naked and ashamed. The perfect marriage, the godly marriage, is a marriage that purges sin because sin brings shame and God does not want you to be put ashamed. Adam and Eve tried to cover their own shame and it didn't work. God himself killed an animal because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin and he covered them. If you're finding yourself struggling your marriage is falling apart. It's a sin issue and it has to be addressed. You can talk to us. You can reach out to us. You can message us online, but you have to address it. God has called you to walk with your spouse, glorifying him unashamed. And that's what we're going to do. Amen. God bless you. Uh, if you have any questions, please come forward. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.